Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everyone, this is Six Degrees with Mike McKenna, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. This episode, I'm joined by five-time Stanley Cup champion and Hall of Famer Grant Fuhr. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes, Spotify, and all the streaming channels. As always, you can find me, Mike McKenna, at Mike McKenna 56 on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Take your pick. Before we get to Grant's interview, the NFL season is in full swing. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And hey, I'm in Vegas a lot. There's always the online casino at betonline.ag. It never closes there. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag. Sign up today. Here's Grant Fuhr. Enjoy, everyone. Today's guest, Grant Fuhr. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. Where do you find yourself today? What's keeping you busy in your life as of now? Uh, right now, I'm living down in Palm Desert, California. So with COVID going on and everything else, but the only thing you can do down here is play golf, which kind of fits into my world. So it's been okay. <laughs> I know when I was doing research on you, it's all I heard that constantly. Loves the golf, loves the golf. We'll get into more of that as we go along. But the first thing I wanted to ask you and bring up is that a very famous person in the game of hockey, somebody known as Wayne Gretzky, once said that you were the best athlete that he ever played with. When you hear that, how does that resonate in your mind when possibly the game's greatest player of all time says that about you? Uh, you know, it's hard to say how it really resonates. I mean, obviously it's a phenomenal comment. So I, I played the game because I had fun. Yes, we were fairly athletically gifted, but I think as I got later in my career, I may have gotten to be a better athlete, if that makes sense. Huh. So what, what do you think changed as you got older? I get smarter. <laughs> but no. <laughs> a lot of it was spending some time with Bobby Kersey. I think I got to learn what real athletes train like, what they go through. And it actually, as I got into my 30s, it actually made me a better athlete. Right. And so your, your relationship with Bob Kersey started with the St. Louis Blues. And ironically enough, I, if I've got the timeline right, please correct me if I'm wrong. It's because you came to camp and for whatever reason, Mike Keenan said, he's not in shape. We've got to get him in shape. And that's when you linked up with Bob Kersey. Is that timeline right? And what did Bob Kersey put you through? You know, I was reasonably close. I, I came to camp in training camp shape. I always carried probably 10 extra pounds into training camp just because Training camps drag on, and you want to be fresh come playoff time. So I always had a few extra pounds. Mike didn't quite agree with me on that. So I get to spend some time with Bobby. Bobby understood. So we just kind of slowly went about getting into the shape that Mike wanted. But having played 79 games that year, if I had come to camp in perfect shape, I'd have been burnt out before we ever got to the end. And that was an unbelievable run. You know, for someone like myself growing up in St. Louis – and my dad was an off-ice official. My grandpa was. And so I saw all those games at the old Keel Center. And I could just remember, he's starting again. You know, and it was night after night. Here comes Grant again and again. When is he ever going to get a day off? And that day never came. I mean, you know, you'd played a lot in your past. But was that year really a grind for you to get through it and to play that many games? 
no, I actually enjoyed it. I think that was the fun part is I like to play. And I found I was sharper if I played every day. And it just kind of flows. You don't have to think about it. Once things get going, the adrenaline kicks in. Even on days you didn't feel sharp, you could find it. So the more I played, the better it was for me physically. Yeah, it takes a bit of stress off because you, well, you don't have practice either as off. I mean, you're practicing, but you're probably not as much, I guess. Probably got some time off, or at least you could pick and choose how much you wanted to do that and really divert your energy energy just to game time. You know what? I still practice a fair amount, but you're not out there for the full hour, hour and 20 minutes, whatever we were practicing. You'd get enough work that you felt sharp. And then there'd, Bobby'd be over by the board saying, you've had enough. And we'd go in and do off-ice workouts. So a little walking on the treadmill, 35, 40 minutes worth of stretching, which was a big part of it. So growing up in Spruce Grove, Alberta, you know, what was it about goaltending? What drew you to the position? You know, we all have different reasons, but, you know, it seems like we all kind of funnel into a couple of different areas. So what really drew you to be a goaltender? You know what? As a kid, the equipment looked cool. And we played in an outdoor rink, so nobody else wanted to do it. So I thought the equipment was cool. I thought, you know what? If nobody else wants to do it, I get to play the whole game. I get to be the only guy out there the whole day. So I decided it'd be a good idea to play goal and just to see where it went from there. The odd part, though, is you had to start catching with your left hand, right? And as you got older, you got the opportunity to catch with your right. Uh, you being a full right goaltender like myself, we're in the minority of goaltenders. Was it hard for you to switch, you know, midway through your youth hockey experience from one hand to the other with which hand you caught the puck with? No, because when I started playing goal, I didn't know any better. I mean, I think that was the great thing at being four or five years old. You just didn't know any better. So I played goal the way, well, what people call the natural way. But when I played baseball, I caught with my right hand. So when I was finally able to get gloves that were normal, it actually turned me into a better goalie right away just because it was natural. And I shot right-handed. So everything just kind of transitioned really easy. But even at Edmonton, we'd still switch gloves in practice once in a while just <laughs> to play the standard hand just to see if I could still do it. That's fun. I did. You know what? My last year pro, when I was with Craig Anderson in Ottawa, we did that for a warm up. Our goalie coach at the time wouldn't let us do it in practice. We were ready to go for it, and we only got the clearance for warm ups. And I see, I catch a baseball with my left hand, so I I do either. But I'm the same way that I shoot right handed when I play out when I skate. So for me, it was such an advantage that to be able to shoot the puck and pass the puck, the proper hand. And I, to me, I think all kids should play like that if they have the opportunity to do so. Oh, no, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, it's so much easier to handle a puck. It actually helps you read the game better, too, because you're not having to worry about flipping your hands over and then looking around to find things. It's just a natural transition. Yeah, and then you end up having 14 assists and setting the NHL record like you did Edmonton. <laughs> Was that just a magical season handling the puck, or did it have something to do with maybe a guy named Coffey or Gretzky playing alongside you? Oh, I think it had a lot to do with our system and the talent we had around. I just had to get the puck in the right areas. Yeah. So a lot of it was just kicking rebounds into the right spot, stop the puck behind the net, get out of Coff's way. I mean, it wasn't the whole lot of talent that went into that. Good teammates. So how did you actually learn goaltending? You know, growing up in your era, did you have a goaltending coach or were you just, you know, emulating your heroes, the NHL players, maybe the Western Hockey League players that you'd seen as a kid and idolized? You know, a lot of it was just by feel. And I, th I didn't get my first goaltending coach till I was in Buffalo. So I'd already had what, a dozen years in the league by the time I had a goaltending coach. So a lot of it as a kid was just watching guys on TV. I mean, I was a big Tony Esposito fan. I was a big Glenn Hall fan. So 
you watch things on TV and you just try and emulate those guys. You're telling me you won five Stanley Cups before you ever had a goalie coach. Yeah. I mean, well, I Ron Lowe was a partner to start with, and he was a great sounding board for things. So that helped my early years. But after that, you're just trying to figure it out on your own. That's unbelievable. I mean, I, it was similar for me in some ways in that I didn't have like a dedicated full-time coach until late in my career. But, you know, in summertime, you'd still revert back to people. You'd see them, you'd learn from them. But I, I think you hit it on something that's really interesting, how you and Lowe would bounce off one another. I always felt that my goalie partner and I were really our own best coaches if we worked together. Did you, were you able to, to tap into that throughout your career with your goalie partners? Oh, yeah, I was lucky that way. I mean, I had Ronnie right away. I had Andy Moog for the longest time. I had Billy Ranford, Dominic Hasek, Felix Potvin. So all my way along, you had guys you could talk to. The guys that were younger than I was, they'd talk to you. So it made you think about the position a little bit more. And it was a nice way of kind of transitioning the game. And as the game changed, you learned to change with the game. You know, you, you had a good career even before the NHL. Your time with Victoria and the, and the WHL went really well. Eighth overall draft pick. But did you really expect to step right into the NHL out of major junior? Or did you think that there was an opportunity that you may have to go to the minors, to the American League before you got that chance? Oh, no, my first year, I was fully expecting to go back to junior. I had, there was no thoughts, not even a hint that I was going to stay in the NHL. So I went to training camp to just play and have some fun. I mean, there was no pressure. Andy Moog had just coming off big playoff against Montreal. They had Ronnie Lowe, Donnie Edwards, or not uh, – yeah, Don Edwards, you no, Gary Edwards was there. Eddie Meal was there. So they had lots of NHL goalies. So I didn't even worry about it. I just went and played. And you played well enough to grab your role. I mean, that's amazing. Like, it, I, I guess it, you must have been playing really free at the time for that to happen without having uh, that much over your head. That's, it's so often now that young goaltenders, if they get drafted high, they think they're just going straight to the NHL. And even then, they don't realize that there's a process to it. Uh, by today's game and and even for yourself digging into your background learning that you had that process you know you had a great first season but then your second season you ended up getting sent to the minors for a while was that something of a reality check at that time what did you learn from it uh, and also maybe any thoughts of a person who was my actual first goalie coach Lindsay Middlebrook a fellow full right goaltender ah, a teammate okay. of yours in the minors in Moncton you know, what was that like after having early success to have to go down to the minors and earn your way back to the NHL? Well, you know, the first year, there wasn't a lot of thinking. You're just taking it all in and just playing. Where all of a sudden, my second year, I had shoulder surgery that summer and then rolled into training camp with big expectations. While all of a sudden, expectations lead to thinking. Thinking and playing goal usually don't go very well together. So I, got, I was actually lucky enough that it let me go to the minors and get a reset. And having a veteran guy down there in Lindsay, you get a chance to talk to him a little bit. And basically what I needed was a reset mind-wise to get back to just playing and stop thinking so that everything happened by instinct and not take that extra second and think about what you're doing. Seems like it worked okay the next season, right? By the time you got back, 83, <laughs> 84, things went really yeah, well. We were, yeah, we stopped thinking by that time. We just back to playing again. Sure. And, and that's really where things kicked into gear, right? You know, you start to win the Stanley Cups in Edmonton, uh, five of them, <laughs> four of them uh, with you taking the bulk of the time. You've had six all-star games in your career and some incredible teammates and players. Was there an unsung hero to those Edmonton Oilers teams? Because we always think of Mess and Gretz and Coffee and, and Curry, but 
somebody maybe that sticks out to you that didn't ever get enough credit? I, I think you look at our support players, the guys like Davey Hunter, Patty Hughes, Dave Semenko, Kevin McClellan, Lee Fogelin, uh, Kevin Lowe, guys like that, that played some hard minutes that got zero credit for it. I and mean, yeah, we had a shitload of talent, basically, that always got the credit and everything, but it's the support guys that you win championships with. What was it like stepping on the ice with Gretzky every day? I mean, did he do things in practice that always caught your eye? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, it made you a better goalie because the one thing about our practices is they were geared for scoring. So if you were having a bad day at practice, you got lit up pretty bad and it didn't look so good. And a lot of our drills were based off of if they didn't score, they had to skate. If they did score, then the goalies had to skate. So it turned into a little bit of a competition too. And then with Andy and myself, a lot of what games you started were based off of how you practiced. So we had to be good in practice too. And that style wasn't, the old Smythe division was, I mean, run and gun, up and down the ice, Battle of Alberta. Uh, to me, that really encapsulates your, your career, you know, known as the big save goaltender, the right time goaltender. How did you ever find that mindset of being able to always focus in when it was necessary to do so, to make the right play and to frankly make it almost look nonchalant, like you were just out there doing your job and having fun? I realized early in my career that it's not going to be about numbers. It's about winning. And through my dad who played the game a little bit and such, different coaches I had growing up, it really didn't care about goals against average. You didn't care about save percentage. You cared about if you made a save at the right time. And I just took that into pro. And my junior coach, Jack Shoup, was the same way. He's like, I don't care what your numbers are. Just make the save when we need it. And it was a mentality that I basically grew up with. And even when I was coaching, it was like, I don't really care what the numbers look like. Just if we need a save to win a game, then go make a save. doesn't have to be pretty. Just make that save. Well, it gives your teammates such confidence, right? You know, knowing that you've got a rock back there. And it's, they don't look at your save percentage and look, this is guy's going to get it. They look at what happens in the big moment, the last five minutes, the two-on-one maybe late in the second period that you've got to make that save to keep your momentum. And every time I hear a teammate of yours talk about that, it's brought up. I just, I marvel at how you were able to get your mind into that rhythm uh, when so many goaltenders today, I mean, what would you say to a goaltender today that's in his own head and can't get out of it? I think part of the problem is everybody looks at numbers today and they're all worried about numbers tied to salaries. Where back then we were taught, Glenn Saylor taught us that it's, it's not about numbers. That are, if you win, everybody gets paid, bottom line. So you looked at, okay, if, you have to, if the game's 3-1, you have to make a save to keep it 3-1 or you have to, on either way, whether you're losing or winning. And sometimes it'll turn the momentum and momentum's a big thing in hockey. So you just, it's a lot of it's reading where you're at in the game as well. I had a pass along question for you and it actually came from Al McInnes. And he told me to ask you that about <laughs> Paul Coffey coming up to you and always tapping you on the pads before a game and saying, see you after the game, Fierzy. Now he didn't give me any context on it. So I'm curious what he's referring to there, or if it was just a throwaway line from, from coffee before every game. Well, we didn't exactly play a defensive system. So, <laughs> and coffee, cough wasn't known for being a defensive guy. Cough's bread and butter was offense. And he led a lot of rushes and Charlie Huddy was pretty much in the unsung hero of that pairing is because Charlie was always back. 
and covered for Koff. But we knew Koff was going to be aggressive. He was going to be in the play. He may stay for a couple of rebounds in the other end. But at the same time, if you needed a goal, he would get you that goal. You just had to make a save for him if he happened to be a few strides late. And as good a skater as he was, by the time you had to make a second save, usually he was back. So when you win five Stanley Cups, and again, four of them with you carrying the load, I'm curious, from the time you won your first Stanley Cup to the fourth Stanley Cup to the fifth Stanley Cup, did they ever lose their luster in those wins, or were they all just as special as one another? Oh, no, they're all just as special. Because different things happen over the course of the year that are a little bit different. You have different players. Different things move in different ways. So they're all special in their own way that way. What's it like when you guys get back together again nowadays? Oh, it hasn't changed. It's still just like we left the dressing room. Conversations get picked up where they left off, and we all still think we're still young. Isn't that the best part of hockey, though? You know what? It's the part of hockey that you miss when you retire. I mean, I know when I first retired, it wasn't the game so much that I missed, but you miss seeing the guys. You miss having that routine because you've done it your whole life. Go to the dressing room, you have coffee, you hang out with the guys, you practice. You go home. There's a routine to it. All of a sudden, that routine's not there. You don't see the guys. I mean, I was lucky enough I stepped into coaching right away. So I still get to go to the dressing room, still see the guys. But a lot of guys, when they retire, don't have that. It's a big void. Yeah. And, and for me, that was similar how I wanted to step into broadcasting. You know, I'm still in the game, right? I get to go to the locker room. I get to talk to the guys. It's a little different because I'm not so much in the same locker room, pulling the same on the same rope, you know, but still yeah. in the game, right? It fills that void. And now I get to just watch the whole game. And the hard, the, actually, the challenging part for me, Grant, is that I, I, have to die, I have to describe everything and not just goaltending now because <laughs> that oh, was my bread and butter for years. Well, I did it for a year with HDNet. I went and did color commentary, and it's like, okay, I get where the goalie's going and what he's thinking and everything, and all of a sudden now you're analyzing the whole game, and it's like, oh, I might have missed that. So, but it was, it was a fun way of looking at the game, just a different way of looking at it. Yeah, I totally agree. So you're rocking along in Edmonton. Everything's great. You've won cups and the suspension comes down. Your drug usage comes up and, you know, it's, it's out there. It's talked about, but at that time, I mean, the league really took you and they made an example out of you. It felt like, right. And, you know, from what I've heard, and maybe you can go deeper into this, you know, your, your substance usage had already ended. It had been done, but you'd been outed about it, that it had happened. You know, first your feelings when that happened uh, to have that year-long suspension after knowing that you'd taken the right steps. Uh, and then second part to that now is how the league treats things in a way to treat players. And if there's any solace in knowing what you went through, maybe pave the way down the road for things to be handled in a better manner. Hey, you know what? First off, it wasn't very much fun. I'll, I'll vouch for that right away. But I mean, you go about things the right way and yeah, it happened in an ugly way. I mean, you get a divorce and things come out and the press like to run with things. So yeah, I mean, I made the mistake. I did it. You got to pay price for that. That's, I have no problem with that. The league, were they going to make an example of somebody? Yeah. I mean, our team had success. What better than to find a team that's got success to make an example? And they had no drug policy at that time. So John Ziegler's view at that time was to punish. It wasn't about the person or anything. It was just we'll punish somebody to make an example. And we thought at the time, yeah, it's the wrong way to go about it. And, but the Players Association at that time didn't really know what to do either. So, yeah, I get to be an example. But at the same time, 
it opened everybody's eyes to where they decided that they needed to have a drug policy and they need to help the players. I mean, and I think that's the biggest thing and probably the best thing that came out of it was the league figured out that you've got to help players. You can't sit there and bury it because by punishing them, guys aren't going to come out. It's only right. going to get worse and worse. So yeah, it, it's, there's good and bad to it. Sure. Well, and, and you know, what's hard about it is that, you know, for a young person like me and talking to my parents at the time and, and finding out that, well, Grant Fear has been suspended because he does drugs. You know, that was the message. And, you know, you get demonized about it, right? Where instead of the message being, well, he was somebody who maybe he needed some help and now he's on the right track and whatever else, like you're immediately thinking as a kid, like this is a bad person who does drugs. And, and how many people in the league were doing drugs at the time? Or, you know, even nowadays, how many players have been in the program that people don't even know about that have gotten the help they need? You know, like it's, it's come a long way since what you went through. Oh, it's made huge strides. I mean, we decided at the time we were just going to face it head on and deal with it and live life on the front page of the paper for a little while. And yeah, it was hard mentally, but at the same time, it made me a better person. So, and I got thick skin. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's the biggest thing. I grew thick skin out of all that. We're not a whole lot bothers me. So I, we went on talk shows and yeah, people were, some, some were rude, some weren't really kind. But at the same time, we're no different than anybody else. We have the same issues as everybody else in society. And a lot of people lost sight of that. So, yeah, when I talk to kids now, they're like, hey, you made some mistakes, but you can still be successful. And I'm like, yeah. And it's a big teaching point is, yes, you can make mistakes. It's what you do with the mistakes. How did it feel coming off of that suspension to shut the devils out first game back? That was pretty good. I mean, going into that game, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I know I spent a lot of time in the gym, which was not high on my favorite list. But at the same, <laughs> but at the same time, I knew I was ready to play. And the one thing that I love to do was play. So I was looking forward to it. But at the same time, I hadn't played in 40-some games. And I'd only practiced up until that point for probably two and a half, three weeks. So... I felt good, but I wasn't sure how it was going to work out. And the guys played their hearts out for me, which was really nice. I mean, I think that was the greatest thing. Guys that normally don't block shots for blocking shots like cough. Like, <laughs> guys like that. So to see forwards blocking shots, defensemen blocking shots was a great feeling. I want to talk to you about Skin Effects Wraps, designed and produced by Mark Magnanti, based out of Rochester, New York. Small company, American company professional vinyl wrapping specializing in goalie masks. If you want a quick, affordable way to make your mask look good, I cannot recommend Mark enough at Skin Effects Wraps. He did a fantastic job for me this year when I was in a bit of a pinch. I had an old mask that just didn't look good when I would occasionally be on the ice practicing with the Vegas Golden Knights. So Mark helped me out, made it look great. The turnaround time was outstanding. You wouldn't even hardly tell that it wasn't traditional paint. The wrap looks so good on the mask. So if you're looking for something, again, quick, affordable way to get your mask looking good, looking right for the team that you're on, hit up Skin Effects Wraps on Facebook, Instagram, or send Mark an email at skinfxwraps at gmail.com. Thanks to them for helping me out, and thanks for supporting Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. It, it had to be kind of a shock later, you know, not long after that to go to Toronto, to go to Buffalo, to go to Los Angeles. If you just had a decade long run in Edmonton on an absolutely legendary team. And, and I wanted to touch on your time 
in Buffalo, because you did earlier as well, mentioning that you had a goalie coach for the first time. And it was Mitch Korn. And it was very early in his NHL coaching career. Uh, Mitch has become a dear friend to me. And, you know, I was drafted by Nashville when he was uh, with that. And, you know, he, he kind of talked about how you and Dom got along and worked together. But people forget, man, you guys won a Jettings Trophy that year. You know, this wasn't, this was really, really good hockey that you played at that time. Uh, what are your memories of working with Mitch and also working alongside Dom? You know, I, I saw Dom in the Canada Cup back in 084. So you knew Dom was good, but it was fun to work with Mitch because it's the first guy that I talked to that hadn't really played the position, but knew the position. So to bounce different ideas off of each other, he would tell you what he sees and what he thinks. And you would tell him what your perspective was from being on the ice. So it was kind of neat to sit and bounce ideas off each other and to see what he was thinking. And you tried to set up different drills so they'd be game-like and he'd have a theory, you'd have a theory to mix things. And it was fun. That's the most important part I thought about was the collaboration. It's interesting how you had that earlier in your career with your goalie partners and then found it again later with a goalie coach. When some guys get to goalie coaches and the goalie coaches are just black and white, this is what you have to do, you know? And I always appreciated that about Mitch was that he was, he was very open to listening. Uh, and in, in addition to that, continuing to update his methods uh, as, as he worked. And I'm, I'm curious by that point in your career, you know, what changes were taking place for your game technically, stylistically compared to when you first came in the league? Well, as you get older, you got to adapt to your body. One, first and foremost, I mean, through a few injuries and this and that, you adapt your style a little bit. But at the same time, you're learning to read the game and you're never too old to learn. I mean, that was the fun part is you're always trying to get better and you're always trying to add things to your game to create longevity. And I think that's part of why I played so long is you're always trying to add stuff. And there's ne you're never perfect. So if Mitch, if Mitch would see something, he'd like, well, you know, if you tried this, it might set this up. So we try it and you, you always found things, the little things that you wouldn't look for that he was looking for from his perspective. So it let me grow my game a bit. Something I noticed about you too, is that you are always seem to be willing to try new equipment early in your career at DNR. You were, it seemed like that was your company. Uh, I remember you trying the laser pads for a little while that were in an all-star game. They had no knee rolls on them at the time in the eighties. I mean, that was light years down the road. Did you enjoy that aspect? I mean, you had sick equipment. Like your, your color patterns were always good. To me, it looked like you cared how you looked on the ice. Uh, the funny part at Edmonton is Glenn Sather always said, if you look good, you feel good. If you feel good, you play good. So I like to try and make the equipment match the uniform so everything blended. I think out of all the equipment I wore, the only ones I really didn't like were the lasers. I mean, I could never quite get used to the ultra-modern thing. Even when I finished, I still... My pads were a little bit heavier than everybody else's. I just liked that original feel that I had because what I, it was what I was used to. What caused that switch to brown later on in your career? Uh, Ronnie Lowe actually wore browns when I about 80. Well, he started with the browns. I think I got my first pair in about 83, 82, 83, somewhere in there because I saw what he was wearing. So I wanted to try them just to see what they were like. And I started my first year, I think I wore cohos. So I got those just out of junior. So I got a chance to try out the Browns and really like the feel of them. Ran with those for a while, then got the chance to try out the DNRs. So I went with the DNRs for a little while and 
went back to Browns in Toronto and then went back to a set of DNRs in Toronto after that. Got to Buffalo. What did we run with Buffalo? Went back to Browns in Buffalo. Uh, went with Browns when I got to LA. Got to St. Louis. Started with Browns. Switched over to Devon's just because we had a couple of sets that come through the dressing room. I threw a pair on one day just to see what they were like, and they actually felt pretty good. So I threw those on. And then Franklin approached me about trying to figure out how to make goalie equipment for them because they made great street hockey stuff, but not ice hockey stuff. I was going to say. So <laughs> we were the crash test dummy for that. Grant, man, that they had to throw a pile of cash at you for that one. There's no way you were going to wear a street hockey company if they weren't giving you some, some incentive for it. <laughs> Actually, you know what? There's a little bit of incentive, but the biggest incentive was that I could help create it. I think that was the most fun is I could tweak things the way I wanted to just to see if you could actually make something work. Oh, and I, okay. I enjoyed that. That's cool. So you actually had a hand in designing that set of equipment. Yeah. I could tell them what I wanted and how I wanted it to feel. And they'd go back with an idea and try and create it. And then they'd send it back and we'd have some fun with it. That's cool. Hey, how wide do you think your brown pads were that you were wearing in Toronto and Buffalo? When the maximum was 12 inches, I see those things and they look like a canoe. There's no way they were 12 inches wide. Actually, you know what the fun part was? As they started at 12 inches wide, as they got wet, they would expand. And as most goalies know, if you happen to step on them a little bit before you go out, they might grow to about 14 at the bottom. <laughs> but, I, but I always wanted the knees narrow because you want your knees narrow to keep your knees together when you went right. down. So the knees would always be 11, maybe 11 and a half, but sometimes the bottoms would grow a little by the time playoffs rolled around. Well, I heard a crazy rumor that you would, you would practice without padding in your pants to make your hands faster. Is, that, is there any truth to this at all? The only padding I had in my pants was thigh pads. That's games practice. That's just what I wore. I mean, I laughed because I went out and practiced with the guys when I was coaching in Phoenix and they were like, you were going to wear that. I'm like, yeah, that's what I wore. The arm pads didn't have a whole lot of padding. You got to take a scalp when you trim stuff out. It was all about movement. So yeah, if your hands weren't good, things hurt. That's unbelievable. Well, no wonder you had incredible hands. If you, if you're going out there practically naked on your hips, (laughs) I'd have quick hands too. You have the distinction of wearing all three different kinds of helmets. Preservation. Yeah. <laughs> you have the distinction of wearing all three different kinds of masks and helmets. So the traditional flat Jason style fiberglass mask, the combo helmet and cage, and then the modern fiberglass and wire cage uh, mask as well. Is it, is it incredible to think about how much that changed during your time and just how much better masks were by the end of your career? I was, you know what? Still a traditionist. I still love the full face mask. I mean, I think that was my favorite of the bunch. It was probably the most comfortable of the bunch. The helmet and cage was okay because I wore it as a kid. And then the transition, once I got used to it, was good. I mean, yeah, it made it a lot easier. When you got hit, it didn't hurt. And I think that was the biggest thing as things expanded and got later in my career. But the original mask was still my favorite. It just happened to hurt a little if you got hit, but you didn't get cut. So that was the bonus. Well, we couldn't be sitting here without me asking you a very personal question about your stick pattern. And the reason being is because throughout my entire life, from the time I was 14, maybe 13 years old, when my grandpa got me 
I believe it was one of your pro return Christian St. Louis blues sticks. I used your pattern throughout my whole career. I modified it a little bit with a little bit longer, uh, changed the curve slightly, but your lineage stayed in the NHL for an awful long time. How, how did your stick evolve over the years uh, to what you eventually used in St. Louis? My, my first few sticks were basically big trees is what they were. They were heavy. They weren't very good for much of anything. And I was a terrible puck handler to start my first couple of years. So the sticks got a little better, a little bit lighter. And Sherwood, oh, probably about 86, 87, we got them to make me some really light sticks. But the problem is they kept snapping. So we had to make them a little bit heavier. And by the time I got to St. Louis, I'd seen other guys using Christians and fiddled around. And the first pattern they sent me was fabulous. It was light, it was durable. And the curve they got me right out of the gate was phenomenal. So that's, I, the rest of my career, I tried to pattern my sticks off of that pattern. We were alike. Only you won five more Stanley Cups and won about, oh, I don't know, 395 more games than I did. I can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, you had something that was unique about you is that you would wear equipment right out of the box. And in your day, that didn't happen. People would break gear in for two weeks, a month. Now we, we do. We wear it out of the box now. We like the new feel. We like stiff pads that give big rebounds. Gloves are broken in. How did you come to the conclusion that, yeah, this pad came in today. I'm just going to strap it on and go play tonight. You know what? I'd throw it on in the morning skate. If it felt good, I'd roll it into the game. I mean, it was... I, didn't really fret much about equipment. You throw it on once, if it feels good, then you might as well put it in the game. The only thing I had a hard time transitioning out of was the chest protectors. I mean, I'd, I think I wore maybe three my whole career. Wow. So that was, the only, that was the only thing I had a hard time with because all the new ones, they kept adding padding and adding padding. And I'm like, I can't move in this. It doesn't work. So by the time the scalpel got through carving it up, <laughs> by the time I got it right, it looked just like the one I was just wearing. So I think, yeah, three, maybe four total in 20 years. That's amazing to think. Well, Marty Brodeur went the better part of, I think, at least a decade. He wore his from junior until very late in his career when uh, he eventually had an arm injury, elbow injury from a shot going off of it. You know, I, th I think that's pretty common, really, for your generation to have worn what you really liked up top, at, uh, arm and chest-wise. Whereas now we're just, you know, goalies now are one, two, three a year trying to stay big, stay coverage, um, but for you guys, it was just was so important to be able to have that maneuverability for your hands, right? It was. It was all about movement more than anything. I mean, I, I think my first year I wore one that I wore in junior that I'd created. It was the two-piece, a chest protector and arm pads that we'd sewn together. I wore that into about my second year pro. Then I got my first set of browns, a white pair of browns. Then I went to a black pair of browns. It was pretty much the same. And then I had a yellow pair made for me in St. Louis, which was about my third set. Wow. So, Wow. Well, you know, your time in St. Louis coincided with another friend of mine, Bruce Racine, who backed you up for the better part of your Ironman run, 79 games played in one season. And he mentioned how you guys would talk about golf a lot, you know, not in the locker room during a game, but outside of it. And I know that that's a huge, huge part of your life, of what you've done. But you would play day before game. No problem day before a playoff game, even rumors of you playing on a game day, you know, was there any truth to this? And what good did golf serve to you uh, in how you played on the ice? 
you know what? Most of the golf I played were off days. Playoffs I would play every off day just because it's four hours where there's no media and you don't think about hockey. You get away from the game so your mind's fresh when you get to the rink. Game days, I might hit balls for 10 minutes or chip and putt just to keep your mind fresh after the morning skate. Then you go home, eat, sleep, and you're ready to roll when you get to the rink that night. But the biggest thing for me was it was a breather where I wouldn't get myself burnt out. You don't have to listen to hockey 24-7. You just need that space away to clear your head. You know, I'd always known the legend of Grant Fuhrer, I guess I could say, right? I saw you play when I was younger a decent amount, but we didn't have YouTube like we do now. We didn't have NHL Network. You know, I would see you play with the Oilers when they came to town once a year, right? And I don't think I truly grasped just your ability to play in big games until you were with the St. Louis Blues again when in my hometown. And I'll never forget the, I believe, first round playoff series against Phoenix Coyotes where I believe you guys won in game seven, maybe. And there's a famous, famous quote that I've heard from several of your teammates that going into game seven, before you went out for the game, you turned around to your guys and you said, boys, just get me one, meaning one goal. And Pierre Turgeon scored an overtime to win the game one, nothing. (laughs) For someone like you, who was known for being such a relaxed guy, calm, How did you know you were going to win that game? No, you you never know. But what you're trying to do is instill confidence in your guys. More than anything, it's all an optical illusion. I mean, it's kind of like when I started playing goal at five foot nine and 180 pounds, I wasn't very big. So you try and create the optical illusion by moving in and out of the net. Well, the dressing room, you've got to create the optical illusion that you have nothing but 100% confidence. And if you can do that, it gives your teammates that same confidence and it's just a good sales job. <laughs> well, it, it's resonated. That's for sure. I mean, I remember watching that game and I think in overtime you made a save that there's no way you saw. I can remember a clear as day. It was like a stand-up kick save made with your left pad that you just threw it out. And to me, it was goalie intuition. And you know that, you know, those shots where you don't see it off the stick, but you just know where it's going. It's really hard for me to describe that to people that aren't goaltenders. You know what it is? Is you can you get a feel for where people are shooting the puck by the way guys in front of you move. The way they react, right? Yeah. I mean, you, forwards don't like to get hit with a puck. They're going to move the opposite direction of the puck, except for maybe half a dozen guys that I played against. So by the way they move, you get an idea where it's going. And then after that, some days when you're – on top of your game, the puck finds you. You move, the puck finds you. Some days it looks like a marble going by and it's, you can't get hit. So, I mean, that's just the fun of the game is you, you learn to read the game, you read the players, just by how they move, it gives you a sense of where you need to be. You got hit by a lot of pucks in St. Louis and you played a lot of games. And there's still a prevailing thought that if you hadn't been injured, there's a good chance you guys win the Stanley Cup in St. Louis. I believe that was a 96 year. And it was a pretty famous incident with Nick Kiprios where bottom line is he went to the net and he ran you over. You know, it was a feigned contact that Pronger put him in. Well, he ran you over. And <laughs> there's people in St. Louis that still to this day uh, would, you know, burn Nick Kiprios in effigy. Um, but in his book Undrafted, he said that Mark Messier set a meeting up between you and Kiprios. And it was like a thousand pounds off of Kipper's shoulders. 
I'm curious about how that relationship is now, you know, from somebody who legitimately injured you and hurt your team to where you stand today. You know what it was? It's something that happens a thousand times in the playoffs. He's trying to get you off your game. So he falls on you. And it's, uh, I can't even count the number of times it happened against Calgary, different playoff series. There's always somebody that falls on you. It just happened that I had a leg stuck in a bad spot. So it's the first time that I'd actually gotten hurt doing that. And yeah, at the time I was a little bitter and blamed him for it. But at the same time, you realize that it's happened a thousand times before and nothing's ever happened. So yeah, once it's years over, did I curse him a couple of times during rehab? I probably did. <laughs> but at the same time, it's just one of those things that happens. So I'm not one to hold a grudge. Yeah. And the chance to meet him, we're still friends. I mean, I think that's the fun part is we're friends about it. And yeah. I have no ill will. It's just, it basically, it's my theory on life. Shit happens. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's kind of the beauty of hockey, I think, is fans don't realize that, you know, as much as we may hate each other during the play, uh, we're still all professional hockey players. You know, we're still in that special club of people who have made it to the pinnacle of the game. And that's special. And I know time has definitely healed wounds in a lot of ways. It has for me. There were guys who did similar things that I always held a grudge against. And as I got older, I realized that's just stupid. The guy's playing as hard as he can, you know? Uh, and it, it's kind of hard to quantify that for fans, you know? Don't you think that they, they're so wrapped up in always hating the opponent? It's hard to really quantify the relationship we have with other players at times. No, I, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, the one thing that people don't understand is they're, do, they're out there to do a job. You're out there to do a job. Sometimes it doesn't always end in the same result that people want. I mean, I got run over my first year in the Stanley Cup final by Patty LaFontaine and it wrecked a shoulder. So things happen. Patty and I are great friends. I mean, that's the nature of the game. He's doing a job, I'm doing a job. Yeah. But at the same time, you respect them because they're doing the same thing you are. So unfortunately, you don't get to stay healthy your whole career and bad things happen sometimes. So your career starts to wind down and you get that final contract offer from Brian Sutter in Calgary. Was it strange to finish your career just down the road from Edmonton at the, the bitter rival, uh, the Battle Alberta. Uh, it had to be kind of strange to put that Flames jersey on. You know what? It was, it was definitely a little strange. But I think because of knowing Brian and respecting Brian and the way he played the game and such, and knowing that he was kind of an old school coach, it made it worthwhile. Plus my mom was from Calgary. Uh, so to go back there and finish my career, I had no issue with that. The Battle of Alberta had kind of calmed down by then. Had that been the 80s, it probably wouldn't have happened. But by then, the battle had calmed down. Both teams were kind of going through a rebuilding. So for me, it was a nice way to wrap up 20 years. Grant, the, we've talked about all your accomplishments on the ice, um, and you've done a lot off the ice, too. Your charitable work is incredibly commendable in what you've done. But I really draw a lot of inspiration from what your words were when you were inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. The first man of color in the Hall of Fame. And to thank Willie O'Ree right away. What did it mean to you to have that title? What was the power of it? You know, talking to Kevin Weeks, he says that Grant Fear opened, you know, the power of possibilities for all of us as black players. For me as a black goalie, he was a pioneer. How does that make you feel inside to see what's happened ever since uh, you've had your career end? Uh, you know what? It's a, it's a great feeling to have. 
but at the same time, I appreciate all the guys that went through before me. I mean, you look at the Bill Riley, Mike Marson, obviously Willie, Herb Carnegie, Val James. Yeah. And guys like that that went through a lot tougher era than I went through. I mean, they kind of paved the way for me to have that opportunity. So it's not so much what I went through. It's what they went through. I'm kind of a benefactor of what they did. And speaking to some of those guys, I mean, do you feel as though they had it harder in some of the ways? I mean, did you face racism firsthand while you were playing? Uh, you know what? Growing up in Canada, probably not as much as some of the guys that played in the States. I mean, get the odd guy that makes a stupid comment, which yeah. it just kind of rolls off your back. So it, you're on a successful team. There's going to be the odd comment. I mean, that's just the way it is because people don't like teams that have success year after year after year. But at the same time, you ignore it. And you look at what Val went through in the minors. They played in some cities that weren't very friendly. Mm-mm. And he went through it the whole time. You look at what Willie went through in the 50s and 60s. It was a hard time at that time. So I feel like I kind of got off a little bit lucky. That I wore a mask. So half the people had no idea. But you know what the beauty is? I played at the perfect era. No social media. It's true. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I can only imagine. I mean, it is, it's amazing to think how much the game has been cleaned up off the ice purely because of social media that players know that they have to watch themselves now. Yeah. I mean, we were lucky enough. We were allowed to have fun. You didn't have to worry about somebody taking a picture of you. You didn't have to worry about social media posts and we could actually just go be ourselves. And I think that's what made our team so good is we could go out together, hang together. You didn't have to worry about seeing it somewhere. I mean, yes, if we were idiots and showed up on the front page of the paper the next day, but Fortunately, we weren't that bad. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it helps when you're winning, right? That makes things a lot of fun. You get away with a lot more when you're winning. That's for sure. So when you're sitting at home now and you're watching NHL games and you watch goaltenders in particular, what do you think is better about today's goaltender? And what do you think could be missing from a lot of today's goaltenders? I think the biggest thing is their size. I mean, I think the average goalie now is 6'3" about 210, 215, and they're athletic. I think that's the great thing is they're they're big men, they're great athletes, and they're very athletic. I think what you're starting to see is a transition where they're having to become hybrids now. You can't just cut an angle and go down on your knees anymore. You've actually got to be able to move. you got to learn how to read the game again because no hooking, no holding, the puck's starting to move laterally again. So I think you're starting to see where some of the big guys that were just great angle goalies, are slowly getting weeded out because now you have to be able to move. So you've got to be a hybrid now to fit into today's game. So do you think you could step in and coach (laughs) and give the boys some of that knowledge that you have? Are you getting that urge again? You know what it is? Coaching isn't about, actually, I love being around the game. So yes, I am. Yeah. (laughs) But the one thing about, the one thing about the game is goalies all have skill. So you're not coaching skill. You're helping them read the game. You're helping them read the players and understanding what the offense wants to do. So it's, you're, you're more there and you're a sounding board. If they're having an issue, you're there as their psychologist, basically. Mm-hmm. So, and you take all the pressure off them. If they're having a bad time and the media and the fans are on them, it's your job to take that away from them so they can just play. And I look at it one way. You're either good or you're the GOAT. That's, that's it. The two simple things of goalie. Either way, you get to make a difference. That's exactly right. You are. You're either the hero or you're the loser. There's no in between. Yeah. <laughs> no, and that's the fun part about being a goalie. You make a difference every day. 
Yeah. Well, we wouldn't do it if we didn't like the attention. In some way, shape, or form, we all play the game because we want to make a difference. That's the beauty of it. And it's the one position that you get to. Yeah. Well, Grant, man, this is... I'm, I've been giddy the whole time we've been sitting here. This has been so much fun to talk to you and really go in depth on your career and so many aspects of it. Thank you so much for taking the time to do so. And hey, maybe I'll cross paths with you in NHL rink again someday. It'd be fantastic if we could have that opportunity. Oh, most definitely. I'll, I'd still pop over to Vegas once in a while to watch games and we'll have to pop up and say hi. It's got to happen now. You've, you've, you set the table, so we'll make that happen. <laughs> Thank you so much, Grant. It's a deal. Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to all your podcasts. If you're interested in advertising on Six Degrees, please contact Believe at BLEAV.com. As always, you can find me at Mike McKenna56 on all the socials. Thanks for listening. For listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube. You know, when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.